Well, hello there. It's good to see you guys. How are you doing? It's good to be with you. And just a quick note about next week. Not that you need the note because your host is probably let you know, but next week is Easter. And Easter's a big deal, as we know, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons why it's such a big deal is those of, the, those of us that are in our different relational circles, they're looking for places to connect. Um, there's probably something inside. It's like, hey, I just want a place to come and uh, connect and worship on a Sunday for Easter. And yet there is an awkwardness to stepping into a new place. And so we can make that less awkward uh, for any of the people that are in our circle. So let's do that. If you're watching online and you're looking for a place to connect, or maybe you've never stepped foot into one of our uh, physical campuses, we would love to have you join us for that at any of our campuses. Or we'll have an amazing online experience that you can share with other people. So it'll be great. So that's next week. For this week, I'm really excited. And one of the reasons why I'm really excited is we're going to talk about something that I have never actually heard a message on in church before, which is kind of weird because I grew up in church and I've heard a lot of different messages. But what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about Judas. For some reason, uh, he's somebody that we all know a lot about. Uh, we know that he you know, betrayed Jesus and, and all of that, but we, we rarely talk about him, or at least I haven't. In fact, I was talking about this with some of our staff members as we were preparing for this talk, uh, and our wonderful uh, communications director, Yennefer, she said, oh, it's like that song, we don't talk about Bruno. No, no, you know, <laughs> we don't talk about Judas. Yes, yes, I guess if that, I don't know if that's going to take off. We'll, we'll edit that out. That was terrible. <laughs> that's not great. Lin-Manuel Miranda is not going to be taking that anytime soon. But she was right. And it's kind of interesting that we don't talk about Judas. Why is that? I have a theory. Uh, and my theory is, is that we have actually put Judas in a bit of a box where we have started to kind of paint him with a broad stroke where he's this villain kind of character who's always doing evil things for evil reasons all of the time. And those type of one-dimensional characters are pretty easy to dismiss, to kind of say, oh, that's just silly. Sort of like this guy. Uh, this is Mayor Humdinger from Paw Patrol. And yes, I have already made a Paw Patrol and an Encanto reference in the first minute of this message, so you can tell what stage of life I'm in. Parents, you're so in tune with me right now. You're like, you are speaking my language. Like, I am so understanding everything like that. But if you're not familiar, Mayor Humdinger is the bad guy from the Paw Patrol. He's always up to no good. And if you don't know who Mayor Humdinger is, just put into your own mind a villain from a show, maybe when you were growing up or somebody that your kids like. And these type of one-dimensional villains are really easy to just simply dismiss because that's what they are. One-dimensional villains lead to one-dimensional stories. And for kids, that makes a lot of sense. But if we were to flesh out Judas just a bit, if we were to recognize him for the three-dimensional person who really did exist in history, who had real hopes, who had real dreams, who had real aspirations, who, who set out to make his life count in a significant way, and yet who also crashed and burned really tragically, then he becomes a lot harder to dismiss. You know, I think for a lot of us, we have, uh, at least in culture, we've seen crash and burn stories out there. And maybe in our own relational circles, we've known of people that have crashed and burned. And, and every time I come across one of those stories, I kind of have two thoughts that happen in my head at the same time. Uh, one is, is like, man, how, how could they have done that? Like, what, what was it that was going on in their brain that would make them think that that was a good idea? And yet at the same time, I also think like, hey, could that happen to me? 
Like, how close am I to a crash and burn kind of moment? Am I closer than I think? And so Judas is going to help us think about all of those things uh, together. And just giving you kind of a heads up, this is going to be a bit of a roller coaster ride because there's going to be an aspect of this where there's a serious warning uh, that we all need to consider in our life. Uh, but there's also going to be a, a moment of encouragement, too, uh, where, hey, there's actually a reality that we can embrace if we choose to. And so buckle up um, as we talk about Judas. And to start, I'm going to make an observation that is not all that mind blowing, but it probably should blow our minds. And that is this, that Judas was one of the 12 disciples. And you're like, I got, I got to church for that. I already knew that. But let me, uh, let me read the passage where we read that Judas is one of the 12 disciples. And I'll talk to you about why I think that that probably should be pretty mind-blowing to us. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 6. Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated as apostles. Basically, Jesus is building up his leadership base. This is going to be his crew that is going to actually build the church uh, when, when he's gone. And so these are the 12. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I don't know if you caught this or not. There's actually two Judases that are mentioned there. In other uh, accounts, uh, Judas, the son of James, is actually uh, mentioned as Thaddeus. It's kind of like, well, if you have a choice, he, he decided it was probably a good idea to ditch the name. It's almost like by the time John was written, uh, the name Judas had kind of become one of those infamous names that you weren't naming your kids anymore. And so he decided, hey, I'm not going to go by that. I'm going to go by Thaddeus. But there is Judas Iscariot that's in there. And Iscariot probably references the region that he grew up in. Um, But it's significant that Judas is mentioned as being one of the twelve. One, it's it's significant because Judas made a significant commitment uh, to leave everything. I mean, each of the people that are on that list, uh, that are mentioned uh, as one of the twelve, gave up a lot in order to follow this strange rabbi who had some weird teachings And there's nothing to suggest in the text that Judas wasn't anything but sincere in what he set out to do when he made that commitment. And so that's a big deal, that he actually made that decision to follow Jesus for some reason. We're not totally sure what that is. But there's also another reason that is significant that he's in the 12. And this comes from just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 9. When Jesus had called the 12 together... He gave them power and authority to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Judas, and get this, was doing incredible ministry. I don't know if uh, if you had the same picture in mind that I did, but when I think of Judas, I kind of think of him as sort of the inept disciple, you know, the one that's kind of off in the corner that like nobody wants, you know, when they're going out two by two. It's like, please, Jesus, don't, don't, don't give me, you know, Judas, you know, I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but he's not exactly the, the brightest bulb in the chandelier, you know, like when he tries to do things like nothing, it just doesn't seem to happen. But that wasn't the case at all. Judas was actually 
being used by God to do some significant things, uh, some incredible things. There was a pastor um, and an author who's done some, some thinking about Judas, and he wrote this as he was observing that. He said, active involvement in ministry is a good and wonderful thing, but it is not in itself a guarantee of spiritual life or health. Now think about that. Um, I mean, I think we can all think of people that come to mind where maybe they failed in a significant way and uh, maybe they were very public Christian in their faith and that's discouraging. But I actually would ask us to personalize it a bit uh, because that's where it gets to be a little bit more challenging to us. That just because I'm up here speaking is not in and of itself an indicator of health. We're an indicator that my heart is doing great. Just because you're involved and maybe just because you're seeing some incredible things being done through you, um, whether it's a connection or a Bible study you're leading or some team you're involved, just because those things are happening is not necessarily, it could be, but it's not necessarily an indicator that everything is going great in our heart or even that we know Jesus. But with that, not only was Judas doing incredible ministry, and it wasn't necessarily an indicator of his heart. He was seeing some incredible things, too. I mean, think about this. Judas was the one that was there when Jesus walked on water. Judas was there when he rose, raised Lazarus from the dead. He was there when he fed the 5,000. Judas was seeing some incredible things, which begs the, the question, what is it that happened? <laughs> like, how... How could someone who saw so much, who did so much, who was a part of so much, experience such a change in his heart? And we get glimpses of that, but we have to piece it together. And so let's piece it a little bit together uh, uh, with each other. And so one of the pieces we get is from John chapter 12. Uh, This is in verse 1. And this is a familiar story, but let's uh, you'll see the part that talks about Judas. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I love how when the Bible talks about these things, it's just sort of, you know, really casual. It's like, well, you know, who who Jesus had raised from the dead, you know, as if it's kind of not a big deal. It is a big deal. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard. It's an expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his his feet with her hair. It's an act of worship. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected and said, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, But because he was a thief, and as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, The glimpse into the heart, it's almost like there's a a lot of things that are going on in this passage. But let's break it down, because there's a lot of bad that's happening in Judas' life. I mean, first of all, he's a thief. That's bad in general. Like, you you know, don't steal money. Probably not in general. You just shouldn't steal money. Um, So he's, he's a thief. But not only is he a thief, he's stealing from the church. And not only is he stealing from the church, he's stealing from the church when Jesus is there. It's like Jesus, like right under the nose of Jesus, he's kind of like the hands in the cookie jar. And on top of the hand being in the cookie jar, at the same time, he is preaching a message that makes him look 
Like he's very altruistic. Like he's kind of like, man, we need to be doing this. What that shows is there was, uh, Judas is in, I mean, it's obviously a bad space, and this is not a a good glimpse into his heart, but it also shows that he is in a very unstable place as a person, where there is a, and we've all experienced this before, where there is a very public face that we have, where we're presenting one picture of ourselves, and yet the private reality is much, much different. When we've experienced that instability, whether it's kind of on the public side of things, we're trying to, you know, act like everything's okay, but on the inside, maybe we're grieving or we're hurting or or everything's not okay. We know how unstable that that feels. And in this case with Judas, it's the public faces that, man, I am all about God and all about being generous. And yet on the inside, there is a, his heart is in a much different place that that is a very, very scary place to be. And it begs the question, well, how did that happen for Judas? Like, what exactly got his heart to this place where it was like in this really unstable place where maybe he had gotten so jaded so quickly? Uh, some have speculated, and, and that's really what we have to do is speculate a bit. But some have speculated that, uh, you know, Judas was basically the poster child for why Jesus taught a lot about money. <laughs> that money can do some strange things to our hearts. We all know this. And so Judas being kind of the treasurer, he was, his heart was maybe bent towards money that maybe just, you know, maybe it had started to do some weird things, which is possible. Other people have speculated that Judas uh, had maybe different expectations for what the Messiah was supposed to do. Jeff talked about that last week with John the Baptist, how even John the Baptist, who was, you know, trying to do the right thing and and God was doing a lot of incredible things through that John the Baptist had even gotten to a place where he was wondering, is this really the Messiah? And perhaps that's where Judas was at, too. I personally think it was a combination of a lot of different things over a long period of time, because that's really what happens when we see uh, people have failure. It's not something that happened. I mean, maybe the failure happens suddenly, but there's actually a lot that's going on in the heart. In fact, I'd make this observation uh, for all of us, and that's this, that whenever there is a big failure, a critical moment often gets all of the attention, but it was made possible because of a lot of little heart shifts, choices, and compromises along the way. Put another way, when a slap happens at the Oscars that gets all the buzz, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? When a slap at the Oscars gets all the buzz, it was made possible over a long period of time with a lot of different things that were below the surface. Maybe think about it this way. It's kind of like an avalanche. You know, when you see an avalanche like this one over here, on the surface, everything looks solid, and then there's a trigger moment that happens that, that causes everything to kind of start happening and falling and going all over the place. When, when there's an avalanche, the trigger moment is the thing, whether it's like a, a skier or a loud noise or a shift underneath that, that kind of causes everything. The, the trigger moment gets all of the attention, but it was all of the stuff that happened over a long period of time, whether it was the slope of the hill or changes in temperature or the snow below just slowly, slowly get it, started to get unstable, that that's what gets all of the attention is the trigger, but not the stuff underneath. And like an avalanche, measuring our hearts is tricky because it's hard to gauge what is going on underneath the surface and on the inside. You know, when you think of other areas of our lives, if it's like our finances, uh, you know, you can see how your finances are doing by looking at a bank statement pretty easily. 
Or you think of your body. It's like you can look at your blood pressure or your weight or how fast you can run a mile. It's like there's hard data to look at. In fact, I'd even argue that Google has made this a little bit easier for us, too, when we're thinking of other areas of life with those Google memories that show up every, you know, like five years ago. This is what you look like. It's like, okay, it's clear in my life some things have changed over the last five years. Thanks, Google. But when it comes to measuring our hearts, how do you do that? Like, how do you gauge if you're more grumpy than you were in the last year? How do you gauge if you're a little bit more frustrated or a little more bitter? That's harder. I think if if we could all um, agree to one thing, though, is that the last two years have been an assault on our hearts. And whatever your stage of life is, whatever your health uh, whatever your financial situation that arose as a result of the pandemic, job status, uh, whatever it was, can we all maybe come with the assumption that it's not a question on if there are cracks in our hearts, but where? And for us, maybe to pay attention to some of those signs of where am I lashing out more? Where am I getting angrier faster? How am I, how am I doing? Because... Those little shifts make a big difference. They did for Judas, and they're worth paying attention to. But along with the little shifts, there is a critical moment that is worth talking about and getting and paying attention to. In fact, Judas has a couple of critical moments that happen like really close together. And, and mind, just mind me for a second, it's about to get kind of strange. So stick with me here uh, as we read about uh, Judas's critical moment in Luke 22. And this is what it says. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and teacher, teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now... How many of you didn't pay attention to a word I said after then Satan entered Judas? <laughs> was it like, I mean, I think for a lot of us, it's like that. That was, by the way, when we did the immerse uh, reading experience, a lot of us were reading through the book of Luke. It was by far the most common question we got was, what the heck do I do with that? Satan entering Judas. Uh, can we all agree that that is one of the scariest phrases that you could read. It's like you don't want your name on the back half of that sentence ever, okay? But we also need to understand it's probably one of the most confusing phrases that's in the Bible. But there are a few things that we know that it doesn't mean. Uh, we can maybe check off a few of the things. Uh, the first thing we know from that phrase is that uh, it wasn't obvious, you know, I, I think in my head, it's like when Satan entered Judas, I, I think the first thought that comes in is like in the Avengers when uh, Thanos gets all five of the Infinity Stones and like lightning, you know, flashes and everything like that. And that's what happened with Judas. Um, but no one noticed that something had happened to Judas. None of his friends, none of his, none of the other disciples. It's not like they were going around and saying, hey, have you noticed that there's kind of a Satan-like glow around Judas lately? Like, nobody would have seen anything different. So it wasn't obvious or, or really, in that sense, dramatic in that case. We also know that Judas wasn't a helpless victim. 
And this is kind of important because there's, there's a spot where we might think that maybe like, you know, Judas is just sort of walking along and Satan, you know, Judas being really helpless and just kind of this really innocent guy and he's just kind of walking along and then Satan jumps out of nowhere and kind of gets on him and then forces him to do his bidding. But that's not, that's not the, the picture that the Bible presents. Uh, that Satan, uh, that Judas is still the one that's responsible uh, for what he's about to do. I mean, even in the passage we just read, it's that Judas then still consented, uh, that Judas looked for the opportunity. Well, even, you know, later on, as Judas is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he betrays Jesus, it's that Judas is the one that betrays him and is held responsible for him. Which raises a lot of questions. In fact, I know whenever we talk about uh, something like this, about Satan and demons, there's kind of two different camps that we run into as a church. And they're good questions. I don't want to skip past them too fast, even though any of these could be a a longer uh, series. In fact, we've done series on this before. Uh, But one of the camps is, is like, hey, could that uh, could that happen to me? Like, could, uh, like when we talk about demons and Satan, like, could I be possessed by uh, demons or by Satan? And that's. That's worth talking about for a moment. You know, when the New Testament talks about uh, Satan and demons, the, the phrase that they use is not, uh, we often think of it like possession. In fact, in scary movies, it's often thought of like demonic possession, but possession is probably not the best way to think about it. Uh, the New Testament more often talks about it like being demonized or having a demon, which you may not see the difference there, but it really is more about like degrees of influence rather than possession. Uh, in fact, if you are a Christ follower, if you've trusted in Jesus, the Bible lets us know that when you trust in Jesus, that you become indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit is more powerful than Satan and demons. It's not an equal, like they're not like equal enemies or foes or anything like that. God is way more powerful than all of those forces. And so if you were to ask me, like, could I be possessed by a demon or could I be possessed by Satan? I would say no. But I would also say that it is possible to be influenced. Uh, When the Bible talks about what is going on in our world, uh, Ephesians is one place where it says that we are not in a battle against flesh and blood, against people, but actually against spiritual forces of darkness. We often make people the enemy, but that's kind of, in my view, the work of the enemy. That he loves kind of forcing us to start making each other the enemy and like love stirring up division and all of that. But what it is telling us is that there are dark forces that are trying to influence us, including believers. And in this case, I believe what happened to Judas is a very specific, a very real sense of influence that was on him in that moment. So that's one camp. There's another camp here that I need to address, and that is, man, you know what, Eric? I don't even know if I buy all of this stuff that you're talking about. Like, I mean, that sounds like something great for a scary movie, but I'm not sure I buy the whole Satan thing. Um, and, and I understand that. If, if that's where you're coming from, I understand that. What, what I do think at the core of what Luke is talking about in this moment, and, and what I think all of us maybe can hopefully recognize wherever we come on that, is that there was something cosmically big happening in a moment that seemed very, very normal. Or at least it didn't seem super duper dramatic, and yet there was something much bigger happening that that Judas in that moment probably didn't recognize. And I think that that's probably true for all of us too. That critical moments don't always feel all that critical in the moment. 
Like, for instance, um, I brought some coins with me up here. In fact, I need to clear out some space here because, you know, um, I, I, I know when I picture the moment where Judas, you know, you know, takes the money from uh, the, you know, the chief priests, I kind of think of it like the movies I've seen. You know, you know the movies, too, because you've seen them as well. It's always like this slow-mo thing where the, you know, the chief priests, they throw the, the bag of coins. And so it's like, oh, you know, and Judas, it's like then the bag always either hits Judas or it hits the floor and it kind of goes. You know, flies everywhere, and then Judas is so greedy. You know, he's so he's just like you know getting all the coins there, and he's scooping them up. And the and the chief priests are like laughing, like with slow, like they're like, you know. And it's just this big dramatic moment. But in reality, this moment happened that fast. That's how fast those critical moments happen, and that's the truth for us too. You know, I think in some ways, like. Some of our biggest regrets play on slow-mo in our head, like after the fact. But in the moment, they happen just like that. Where we click on that website. Or we go to that place that we weren't supposed to be. Or we make that shady business deal. Or we send that DM. Or say that joke. Or whatever it is that in the moment seemed like not that big of a deal. And I believe that that's just what the human heart is really good at doing. Is that in the moment it doesn't seem that critical. We didn't know that it would trigger the avalanche in our life. And yet it did. You know, uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says that the human heart is deceitful above all else. And what that means is that we're really good at justifying things. In a sense, what justification means is that in the moment, we don't think with the big picture. We think with, hey, this just makes sense, or it's not that big of a deal. And so I think the warning that I've been wrestling with, that maybe we need to wrestle with as well, is that if Judas could justify betraying Jesus, then I can justify just about anything. And some of us know this from the fact that we've been in some of those avalanche moments. Maybe we're on the other side, and we'll talk about that in a moment, because there is hope for us if we're on the other side of that avalanche. But even those of us that have been on that side of the avalanche, maybe we would talk to the person before it. Any of us that are maybe even thinking of a situation or a moment that comes to mind, it's like, hey, that's not that big of a deal, that this person on this side would say, man, you just don't know what could trigger something that's a much bigger deal because that's just the way our human brains kind of tend to work. And whether you want to call that Satan, which I would, or you just want to say, man, that's just the way that people are wired It's worth pausing and thinking about. And just in case you're like, well, Eric, that's Judas that you're talking about. I mean, Judas is like, the again, the bad guy. One, I would say that we have the same human heart that Judas does. And two, I would even point to someone like the Apostle Paul, who, after he became a believer, he still said this. I I call this the Dr. Seuss passage because it's really hard to read. Um, So I'm going to try. But this is what he says. He says uh, in Romans 7.15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Try to say that ten times fast. (laughs) But he's right. And so I think that's worth pausing on. And we'll have a moment to think about that in a minute. 
But if you are on the other end of that avalanche, or maybe there are some regrets where you're like, man, I just wish I had thought about that before. And I man, that's so true. I understand how um, not only things can happen in the moment, but then you replay things over and over again. Then, then listen up, because I think this part is really, really important. Um, what makes Judas's story so tragic is not just the fact that he had the avalanche moment. It's also how he responded to uh, the way that Judas responded, and we, we read about this, was that, you know, you, you know the story. He goes on and betrays Jesus. And after he betrays Jesus, he has so much remorse, and it's replaying so much in his brain over and over again, uh, that he gets to the point where he just kind of, he just can't get out of it and to the point where he tragically takes his own life. I think what's interesting as we read about Judas's story, however, and we are kind of journeying with him. There's a similar journey that is actually happening at the same time. A similar failure story that's actually happening too. And they actually have a lot of parallels to them. And it's the failure story of Peter. Uh, Peter is, you, you guys know the story, uh, the, uh, the disciple who denies Jesus three different times. In fact, there is, a, there is even a part in the, the book of Luke, in Luke 22, where um, Jesus even calls out and says, Hey, hey Peter, you're actually being influenced by evil, by, by Satan. Uh, like, Satan is trying to shake your faith. And, and then we find out that Satan actually does shake Peter's faith. And that Peter does have that moment where he gives in and he betrays Jesus, that he denies Jesus three different times in a pretty critical moment. And so then after the death and resurrection, um, we have a really sweet encounter that, that happens between Peter and Jesus. In fact, um, it happens in a point of time where uh, Jesus, uh, like Peter had already known that Jesus had risen from the dead um, and that he was kind of popping up in different places. And imagine for a moment the, the different feelings you would feel if you were Peter in that space. I mean, there's a part where you're like really excited, I'm sure, that, man, the person I've been following is great. But you would be feeling a lot of shame. You'd be feeling a lot of remorse. Um, and, and you'd be, I don't know, probably like, what's that first encounter going to be like? Well, we know what that first encounter is like because in John 21, uh, there's this moment where Peter is back on a boat doing what he had done before uh, he had come to know Jesus. He's on a boat and he's fishing. And they have a very similar scene play out on how he first met Jesus because they're not catching anything. And then this strange guy on the shore uh, kind of says, hey, friend, go throw your net on this side of the boat. And, and they're like, okay. And they throw their net over there and they take in this huge haul. And somebody that's with Peter says, it's the Lord. And this is what we pick up this moment here in John 21, verse 7. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. It's almost like, hey, you guys can get the boat back. I, I, like, Jesus is on the shore, and nothing is going to stop me. Like, I'm going to look kind of crazy. Like, he just kind of jumps into the water full bore and swims like crazy to get to the shore, all so that he can be with Jesus. And what happens is a very sweet moment of repentance, of restoration, and then Jesus does what Jesus said he would do, which is he uses Peter to build the church. That he uses Peter to do incredible ministry. And if you read the book of Acts, Peter is a different guy from then on out. Because that's what grace does. In fact, what I would argue to you for an encouraging reality, one that we can choose to embrace, and unfortunately Judas didn't, is this, that our biggest failures can lead to our clearest experience of God's grace if we come to him.
This wasn't just true for Peter. I mean, you read about the Apostle Paul. It's the same thing. Paul is somebody that persecuted and killed Christians. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. And yet when he comes to know the risen Jesus, he comes to a place where he says, I will boast in my weaknesses. I would say I will boast in my avalanches because it is in those avalanches that I see God's strength. I think for me, the biggest what if from today uh, is what if Judas had done the same thing? Like, do we really believe that Judas was outside of God's grace? Do we really believe that if he had come and hadn't gotten stuck in remorse, but actually had gotten to a place where he repented, that that couldn't have been one of the most amazing testimonies of God's redemptive power? I do. And it means for those of us that maybe are replaying some kind of avalanche moment in our life to recognize that if we come to Jesus we don't stay in remorse but we actually bring it to him that that could be the biggest expression the biggest experience of his grace that we could ever have so I want to close uh, with this um, because we've talked about it a lot Um, I want to talk about how you're doing how all of us are doing In fact, I'd ask wherever you're at, this might be a little weird. If you're driving, you probably shouldn't do this. But for everybody else, um, if you would close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think about a few of these categories that we've talked about today. The first one is, have there been little shifts that are happening in your heart? Little cracks. Sometimes we mask that as sarcasm. Sometimes we mask it as with a coping mechanism of some kind or another, and we say, it's just not that big of a deal. But are there cracks that are showing up? Are we lashing out in a certain way? I also want to ask you, are you on the cusp of a critical moment? Like, do you you think it? Is the spirit pinging you right now about a situation or a decision or a moment, or something that is just happening right in your life, and and I just feel like wherever we're at, there's somebody somewhere where there is a critical decision that's about to be made. And if the Spirit is pinging you right now to listen to that. In fact, I would say that one of the saddest parts of Judas's journey is that he never talked to anybody about what he was experiencing. Imagine how his life would be different if he had. And so would you talk to somebody as you offer that to God? And I would ask that, are you replaying an avalanche story in your mind? To take that to God and not get stuck in remorse, but to repent, to bring it to him, and to know that he is in the business of restoration, and he's really, really, really good at it. And so in those spaces, let's pray together that God would meet us And encourage us where we're at. Father, thank you that you give us stories like this. Stories of real people. Not little villains or fake people. These aren't moral stories. These are people. And they remind us of our own hearts. But they also remind us of your love. And Father, I pray that wherever we're at today, that you would guard our hearts, that you would restore us, and that you would help us run to you 
and experience your amazing grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.